What makes a great leader great? How do we create a high-performing team? And when we say leader, we mean everyone, because everyone is leading their own life. Will yours be a life by design or a life by default? Those are the big questions, and this podcast will answer them. Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast, where we help you apply the 12 principles of highly successful leaders, because great leaders will produce great results. Welcome to our Becoming Your Best podcast listeners, wherever you may be in the world today. And we're delighted to have a special guest with us today, Mo Carrick. And this is going to be a fun visit. She is a delight. And so welcome, Mo. Thanks, Steve. We're happy to be on. Oh, good deal. She helps brave people do the hard things that make organizations great and benefit people, results, the partners, the environment, and the community. We're going to hear all about that today in our interview. She's a best-selling author, founder of Momentum, and not Moamentum. <laughs> Although that would be fancier, maybe. Uh, yeah, we were just talking, and Mo had been in Paris, and they called her Moe <laughs> versus the Mo. So she seeks to just really help people build their companies, to help them thrive, and especially an approach that's unifying and successful on really powerful, dependent, strong human relations. So tell us, Mo, about your background, including turning points that you may have had that led you down to the path where you are today, and maybe critical learnings that you've had that have really made a difference for you. We're so excited to talk about what you've just written about in your book and everything that's going on. Well, thanks. Thanks so much, Steve. And what a great way to frame that question around, you know, turning points. And at this stage in my career, I definitely am, am looking somewhat in the rearview mirror, although I hope to still have many great and fun things ahead. But, you know, when I look behind, it's really interesting to see kind of how my trajectory has unfolded. I talk sometimes with my children who are in their 20s about that because they're curious and they're looking ahead at their careers and saying, you know, how did you end up doing what you're doing? And, and you know, where did that land? I think for me, I mean, my background is I've been a consultant for a long time. I've been an author only for three years. This is my second book, Brave Face Workplace. But I was an English major in college. I went to school in the University of New Hampshire. I actually thought I would be a novelist. I was planning to write the great American novel, which hasn't happened yet. I'm in the business book genre. <laughs> so it's, I'm taking a leap, you know, to the left. Early on in my career, I ended up being um, a wilderness guide. And I worked back in the, in the 80s and the early 90s in a field that has really become much more mainstream now, which is adventure-based learning and adventure-based adventure therapy for youth, in particular kids in, in, uh, with chemical dependency issues. And so um, that was, for me, making the decision to go into that work was definitely a turning point being a guide full-time, living in, living and working in the wilderness and working with groups, especially youth, was, was powerful work. I loved it. I felt inspired to, you know, be a helper and also loved the adventure side of that equation. And I think another turning point for me came, you know, after I had done that work for a few years and traveled around the country and, and, had the privilege of being in some of the world's most beautiful places, I decided I did want to pursue an advanced degree. And I was interested in getting a MSW. That's kind of what a lot of people in my field did. And MSW. 
Oh, master's in social work. Hey, there we go. All right. We just want yeah. to be sure you don't leave Steve in the dust. <laughs> no, no. Good qualifying question. I, I got to watch my own field speak. But yeah, master's of social work, which is kind of a, a more clinical degree. And and at the same time, I was faced with this nagging thought of like, this isn't for me. So, so another crossroads for me. Mm. I don't know how this was for you, Steve, but I had a friend my closest friend, actually, who was enrolled in a program, it was a different graduate program, and it was an master's program in organizational development, or OD. And I had never heard of that field of study. I, I was like, what is that? And she said, well, it's like therapy for people at work. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I remember thinking, oh, that sounds interesting. So I went with her to school for one day and kind of went to some of the classes. And it was one of those real sort of lighthouse moments for me around saying, oh, this is this is the work that I'm meant to be doing. And so that's when I decided to sort of shift gears, left the clinical realm, moved into the organizational realm and still use adventure often as a catalyst for learning. And I still do sometimes in my work, but that embarked me on a career really as an internal consultant, as a student of people and systems, and then and then as an external these last um, 18 years or so with my own firm. So so that's kind of a little bit about about my background. And there's lots of other turning points, you know, that I don't want to bore you with it, but there are two that I think jump out for me. One is I'm a cancer survivor and the cancer I had, I've had it twice. I, I am a melanoma survivor. My first melanoma, I was only, I was thinking about this the other day, I was only 21. That was a young age to be diagnosed with a disease that's, you know, really quite bad when it spreads. And it put me in touch with my own mortality at that time and kind of gave me a I think a mindset about, you know, carpe diem a little bit. And I've been very lucky. My my melanomas were caught very early and I never had to have chemo for them or whatever, but but they were clearly turning points. And then of course the birth of my children, you know, becoming a mom and all of the ensuing years, which has been twenty-six years now, you know, of of mothering has changed how I how I see the world and I've probably learned the most perhaps in that role. Oh good. What a thank you for what great answers in terms of helping me and our listeners get a real insight in some of the things that led you to where you are today. Great going. Thank you. You bet. Now, let's just talk about your book. Why did you decide to write Brave Space Workplace? Tell us about the book and, and what led up to it and what's the vision and purpose of the book? Mm, thank you. Great question. You know, it's funny in publishing, you know, you've written your own book which I'm, I'm about halfway through and loving. I think that, you know, when you write a book, it's such hard work that you do it because you want to do it. Like you're compelled to do it. I don't think anybody would write a book if they didn't have some sort of reason why they felt it was important to, you know, get this stuff down. And so for me, the call to writing Brave Space Workplace really formed when I wrote my first book, which was called Fit Matters, How to Love Your Job. And I, I wrote that book. Um, it was published in 2017 with a co-author, my friend and colleague, Cami Dunaway. And Cammie and I really were about trying to tell the story of how people entering the workforce or people that were miserable in their jobs could find the right place for them. And it was really driven by our belief that there is right work for everybody and that it takes kind of a different algorithm than what we often see in the media or in the great places to work surveys to figure out what's a great place to work for me, as opposed to just generically, you know, what, what company gets higher ratings on the magazine surveys. And, and so when Cammie and I were researching that book, it started to really form a seed in my mind about my consulting practice. All these many years I've been supporting leaders in organizations in their transformation. And my desire to say, gosh, you know, it's not rocket science how we create 
an organization that really facilitates the human beings in it, bringing their highest and best work to work every day. And so I'm going to write down what I know about how to do that. So in many ways, Brave Space Workplace is more in some ways a book of my heart around saying, hey, leaders out there who are trying to figure this out, it's not rocket science or is it easy? But here's the things people need from work and here's the levers that we can pull to activate that. And, you know, some of that's born out of my own fatigue that we haven't quite got this right yet. You know, there's a lot of miserable people at work, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, The studies I've seen are that engaged workers in the world and the United States ranges between 20 in a Wall Street Journal article I saw just last week to 38 percent. That's a pretty sad number, really. And so what, what do we need to do to unleash the genie? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Unleash the no, potential. No, you're right. And, you know, the numbers don't get better. I mean, I think this is part of why I say this This work is the work of my heart, because I, I got my graduate degree in 1989. And, you know, I, I say this in the, in the book, but we knew then what we know now about, you know, what what it is that makes human beings be able to bring forward their most innovative ideas, their their most powerful collaborations. And and yet we're still we still really struggle, whether you're a small, medium or a large or even a mega company to figure out like, okay, so what is it? How do we do that equation? So I'm trying in this book to in a short and concise way, I wrote the book hoping that people could read it on a long plane flight to be able to get your head around, all right, I've got to pay attention in this system to, to these five things. And, um, and, and that will help activate the best that my people can bring every good. day. Okay, good. And let's dissect this just a little bit. Mm-hmm. How about the subtitle, Making Your Workplace Fit for Human Life? Now, who's that directed to? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I definitely am speaking to the leaders you know, in in the organization or the owners in small businesses or the people professionals, the human resource professionals, you know, I think the pressure is on for leaders and and people leaders to to be the ones who decide what what it is in the organization is going to be designed well for people. And and I kind of played with that tagline. I got it from animal activism actually when you when you see things like some of the the media news about the terrible treatment for for livestock you know chickens being 2 million chickens in one building and you know saying this is not these are not conditions that are fit for animal life you know they can't they can't be sustained you can't get organic delicious fresh eggs you know from chickens that are under stress because they're too fat and they don't have access to water and you know I kind of was looking at that and saying, you know, well, hang on a second, like to a certain degree, when we take human beings with all their beauty and all their messiness, and we put them in the workplace, we have to pay attention to, to their needs, just like we would livestock in that other you know, equation and design and figure out how do we make this work for people. And, you know, most of our models, Steve, I'm sure you've seen this too in your work, our models for how to run organizations are largely based on a foundational mindset that comes from the industrial revolution, which is, you know, kind of an overseer model, like management's job is to keep the people in line and keep them organized and have them produce the maximum output. And to a certain degree, that model has a lot of subtle innuendo that ends up treating people as if they're predictable, as if they are machines or robotic in their approach. And we're not. We're infinitely more complex than any machine out there. And we require special care and feeding almost to a person by person basis in order to activate, you know, our greatness. So 
So that's where the, the tagline comes from. Okay, yeah. Clearly our world is changing. I mean, the these older management leadership hierarchical styles and designs just aren't as near as effective in today's world in bringing out the best in people. So, mm-hmm. well, let's just talk about that. What is at stake for leaders in terms of the people part of their business? Like, what are we talking about here? Because I love your insight. It's a fresh insight. We don't hear a lot of people talking about two million chickens in place where there should be one million and, <laughs> and causing us to think about the workplace. But we should. We should think yeah. about these little tweaks that can make a lot of difference in unleashing the greatest potential, the best that people have to give. So what's at stake here? What do you see from your point of view? You know, from my point of view, I think it's hard to not be, to not act cavalier in this way, but I, part of me really feels like everything is at stake. Scott Allen, who's the general manager at Hydroflask, Hydroflask makes the beautiful aluminum water bottles. They were the first to have, you know, triple insulation and they've a little brand that's now owned by Helen of Troy and they've just grown tremendously. And, and Scott was an endorser for my book. And he said, he said it this way. He said, this book offers inspiration and practical tools for any employer who wants to win both by doing what is best for their people and subsequently winning the war for talent. And I think that's what is at stake for leaders, which is to say, you know, in order to get the results you want in your business, whether you're looking for profit or you're looking to meet your mission, you've got to have people bringing not just like 80% of their greatness every day, but like as close to 100% as you can so that they're, they're occupying, you know, the full capacity that they have. That's how you're going to win with your results. That's how you're going to win with the competition for talent and the incoming generations, the millennials, the generation Y that are right behind them. They're looking at the world of work very differently than the baby boomers, my generation, and even generation Xers have in terms of the kind of contract they want with employers. And they're, they're going to sign on to meet their needs kind of first and foremost. So I think for the leader in business, they have a lot to lose if they can't both attract and also perhaps even more importantly, retain the diverse skill set and talent in the human beings that they hire that will activate the results that they're seeking. Well, Mo, what do you talk about in Brave Space workplace that helps that happen? Well, there's two kind of big buckets of the work that I'm addressing. One is I spent some time early on in the book calling out what I see as the seven things that people need from work. And then in response to those seven seven things, I call out five what I call levers for change, which are the things that I think leaders can can do to manifest a Brave Space workplace. And the seven things are really interesting, Steve, and, and some of these I know you'll resonate with from your in your work that drive some of your work, because I think a lot of them are connected. And, you know, again, none of this is necessarily new to, you know, I'm not the first person saying these things. We are hearing this from a variety of different, you know, voices out there. But when I look at the seven things that people need from work, I'm looking at basically the things that drive nature. And, you know, do you remember Maslow's hierarchy? Of course. Sure. Yeah. So most of us do, you know, we remember Maslow's hierarchy and Maslow had an awful lot right on his hierarchy of human needs, but there are some things that he had wrong and not because he was not a solid, you know, professional uh, psychologist, but I think that he didn't know then some of what we know now. And one of the examples of the seven things people need from work is the need for human connection. 
you know, Brene Brown, who's a mentor of mine, I'm certified in her approach. I'm a member of her kind of global team of facilitators. She talks about it this way. She says, we human beings are social beings. We need other human people, human beings to connect with just as much as we need food, shelter, water, safety, and security. And that's what Maslow had on the bottom level of what we need. And we see that playing out in terms of the risks of isolation and loneliness on human beings. And many of us, if we're working full-time especially, we're bringing that need for connection right into the workplace. And I won't bore you now with all seven of them, but there are dimensions that are related to our humanity more than they are just our contractual obligation with the the employer, which I could do, you know, the essentials. I mean, we need to, we need a paycheck. We need to be felt that we're being paid fairly. We need some benefits. We need to understand where we should work. Is it virtual or do we have an office? But those things are not the big levers that activate people's greatness. They're kind of like what gets you in the door. Okay. Well, Mo, tell us just one or two things from the book that you consider to be the most significant things that can be helpful. Great question. I would say that in, in addition to what we just were talking about, which is being able to understand as a leader or people support person in in a system to be able to say, what is it that people really need to thrive? I think that's one thing, those seven things people need from work. I think the other thing is when, when we look at the levers for success, there's five of them. But the first one I think is probably the most important. And I'm hoping most readers walk away with some insight around, which I call um, the human essentials. And the human essentials has really two parts to it. One is leaders with head and heart habit. So leaders who can think clearly, use their logic and their cognition really powerfully, but also have fortified emotional capacity. They can help people feel seen. They can connect and inspire followership. And I think those muscles often in the world of work are underdeveloped in leaders. And then the second part of the human essentials is teams who care. One of the really important studies that Google produced in 2015 was the Aristotle Project. Have you heard of that? Nope. The Aristotle Aristotle Project was Google's attempt to better understand what makes a team healthy and what makes them high performing. And the study revealed, there was a great New York Times article about it in 2015. It revealed that the single most important dynamic for teams that were performing within Google was their social capital. So the, the psychological safety that they have combined with their capacity to tune into and feel one another emotionally, which we also call emotional intelligence. And, you know, that's, I think, very informative around where a leader ought to start. And I'm hoping that if they get, if people get nothing else from my book, they get the capacity to say, all right, I've got a a firmer grasp or more clarity on what do people need to, to really thrive? And then what do I need to do with my leaders and my teams to activate that? Okay, good. That's good. I was just reading an edition of the Harvard Business Review, and they dedicated, this was either May or June's edition, and they dedicated it to engagement. Interestingly enough, they said they could demonstrate from very significant research that employees involved with teams almost doubled their engagement levels. Mm-hmm. It was the one thing that moved the needle. So there's a lot to what you're saying that creating the dynamics that that can work. Okay, well, Mo, what are you being brave about right now? <laughs> How about yeah, your, right? your business? Yeah, I know. I got to be able to talk my talk. Well, you know, I think there's a few areas. One is definitely, I was just talking to um, one of my employees about this recently. It definitely feels brave to be 
publishing a book and then talking about the ideas in the book because just never know, like, are our readers going to love it? Are they going to hate it? Are people even going to read it? And, and there's this vulnerability that comes with kind of putting your point of view out there, you know, in writing. And so I feel like I'm, I'm, for, I'm constantly sort of fortifying my approach and, and reminding myself, it's okay if not everybody loves it, you know, because <laughs> I, I, I stand by the work. It's born out of my many years of experience. And the good news is most people are really resonating with it. But I do find myself still feeling kind of exposed sometimes around, around that journey. You know, how do I, how do I uh, spread, you know, my own point of view? I think the other piece for me is I'm about to be an empty nester. My daughter is 18. She's heading out to college next year. And I'm aware that I've got a new sort of stage of life ahead, which is where I'm not primarily needed as the, the mom. And that's exciting, but it's also curious for me around what does that mean? You know, as my identity shifts, I've always worked, so I'm not too worried. I can fill that I can fill time with work, but I am gonna gonna miss sort of that piece of having kids um in the home all the time. So that's taking some some courage for me too. Good for you and congratulations. And I love the idea of being brave about things. There are things we need to be brave about and and to go forward with gusto and and although humility, but confidence at the same time, that's being brave. You know, you go for it. Well, yeah, it is. And I think, you know, I talk about this in the book, and it's definitely one of the pieces of Brene Brown's work that resonates so strongly with me. It's like whenever we're being brave, we're also often really terrified. Like when I'm being brave, my palms are sweating. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not like I'm just brave about that. Somebody, I wrote an article recently for somebody that was a piece about the book and I submitted it to the editor and, and I noticed myself being, you know, at the same time confident, like, oh yeah, this is going to definitely resonate in their publication, but also anxious around, oh no, well, they like it. Well, I have to rewrite it. What if they think it's stupid? And, you know, so I think anytime we're called to, to being brave, we're also called to feeling exposed. And, and it is important to stretch ourselves, I think, those, those ways. But it doesn't mean it's easy. <laughs> no, that's for sure. Well, Mo, any final tips you'd like to leave with the listeners today? Gosh, I would say what I would love to leave with your listeners is to give themselves permission to be really curious about the things that to pursue that seem hard. You know, particularly in the realm, of course, the realm I deal with is this whole notion of the workplace. But if someone's unhappy in their job or they're a leader and they feel like they're not thriving, to really like turn towards that instead of away from it and say, gosh, this is a problem that I have. I'm not alone. There's solutions. I just don't know what they are yet. And I'm going to tuck in to being really curious about how others have handled this and what else I can learn to, to, to push through. So I think that's what I would, what I would leave. Stay, stay with it, even when it's hard. Good. That's inspirational. Thank you. And how can people find out about what you're doing, Mo? I'd love to have them follow me. I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, etc. as Mo Carrick. My website is mocarrick.com. The book has its own website, bravespaceworkplace.com, and its sister book, Fit Matters, is on fitmatters.biz. So LinkedIn is another good way. I'd love to have people friend me there and connect, and we can um, stay in touch that way. Well, thank you, Mo Carrick, for being part of this show today. And what a great and productive visit this has been. So many good ideas. And I love your perspective and refreshing approach, your background that you bring with it. And this is a great subject. Awesome. It's been a privilege to talk to you, Steve. And I really appreciate your leadership and the work you're doing just really consistently and regularly out in the world. So thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Well, it's been a delight. 
And we wish all of our listeners the best. We appreciate the fact I'm, I'm continually reminded of how extraordinary you are, the listeners, and the impact that you have in your own life. And we have so much in common for just trying, trying to become our best, to do the best, and it makes a difference. And in the process, you are inspiring. Way to go. <laughs> it's been great. Yeah. Isn't that the truth, Mo? It is. It's so, it's so true. That's what gets me going every day. I'll say. Well, it's been a lot of fun visiting today. We wish our listeners a great day. This is Steve Schallenberger with Becoming Your Best, signing off. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. Would you like help to apply the 12 principles of highly successful leaders in your life, in your family, or in your organization? Call us today at 888-690-8764 to speak with a helpful representative to evaluate your situation and how we can help. Or you can visit becomingyourbest.com. Whether it's a corporate training event, keynote, workshop, trainer certification, or personal coaching, it would be our pleasure to serve your needs. Once again, call 888-690-8764 or visit becomingyourbest.com today.